Keep your Bibles open to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7, couldn't ask for a better introduction to this text than what we had in our service here this morning. Well, growing up, I watched Little House in the Prairie. I was one of those 80s kids, and I was surprised to find out when I came here to Simi Valley that it was filmed here in Simi Valley. That was pretty exciting. In fact, one time we decided to take a family member and go visit where it was. There was one house still in the property, and we pulled up and found out the night before it had been struck by lightning. That was disappointing. But, um, but if you watched that movie, or that sh- actually that show, it wasn't a movie, well, there was a movie made later, but if you watched that show, you and probably enjoyed the dramatic music, the sentimental stories that they had, and the, I think the purpose of that show was to make you laugh and then make you cry. You know, and it had that part where it would have the music start playing, dun, 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 and you knew it was going to be into the really melodramatic part. And you knew it was going to be a really emotional episode when it had a two-part series. You know, it said to be continued. And then the next week, they would say, previously on Little House. And then you go into that. Well, last week, we had part one of Daniel chapter seven. We started the drama of his story, of history, the story of how God wins from Daniel chapter seven. So today, we are finishing, so previously on His story, we are going to talk about what that looks like, and we're going to finish it up here this morning. Daniel chapter 7, if it was titled as a drama, I think the drama title would be His Story of How God Wins, and the subtitle would be Though the Nations Rage, Rages and Rage, God Wins in the End. I think you could sum up this chapter that way. There's a lot here as we read through that. You might have looked at that and thought to yourself, what does any of that mean? Anyone think that? Well, hopefully we can explain some of that here this morning. This vision plays like a movie with fantastic creatures that symbolically dramatize history, Gentile history. And actually, if you look in verse 1, you'll see at the very end of verse 1 that, that this is not the entire vision that's described here in Daniel 7. He says he just tells the sum of it. This is like the movie trailer we get here. So Daniel saw more of this drama of history. And so we're going to look at at least the movie trailer and look at the explanation from the angel to Daniel. We have looked at two cast members so far. We've looked at humans, the nations, and we've also looked at the ancient of days. That's God himself. And today we're going to look at the little horn and the saints and then the son of man. Previously, we studied the two cast members. We studied humans. We studied that humans are savage and then sentenced. And that's in verses 1 through 8. We're not going to go through that again. But just to remind you that we learned that this vision is a vision from heaven's perspective about the history of earth. And from heaven's perspective, the nations rage like a sea and people rage like a sea. And the nations are like wild animals. We see four beasts, which represent four nations that rage, that conquer and rule. And these nations, these people follow the lust of their own heart. And when they do that, they act like wild animals. I don't know if you have an app on your phone, like a ring app or some kind of social media for the local community here. But often you'll see popped up that someone has a spot a bobcat in their yard or some kind of Coyote, usually like 2 o'clock in the morning. Hopefully you have your notifications turned off. But, you know, they're scared that these wild animals will act like wild animals and eat little Fluffy or whatever your dog's name is. And so they warn you about that. And humans are like wild animals sometimes. When we live according to our own fleshly desires, we can rage. Nations oppress people. Militaries destroy societies. People can act in a way that's very depraved. There's murder, there's rape, there's torture, there's brutality to force your will upon someone else. That's the history of the world. And that's what he sees here in the history of the Gentiles. Daniel gives, or God gives Daniel a view of history from his time until the end of time. And so first he saw the the lion of Babylon, which he was in that kingdom at that time. 
Then he saw the bear of the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard of Greece, and the terrifying, indescribable beast of Rome. And then in verses 9 through 12, we saw that it transitions now from the earth to heaven. We see the throne room of God, the Ancient of Days. And we saw that the Ancient of Days is, is the sovereign who oversees creation and history. The Ancient of Days is that title used to describe God. God uses to describe himself, actually, as one who stands outside of time, outside of creation. And because he is the Ancient of Days, he has the ability to judge those who are within creation, those who are within time. And so in verse 9, we see the symbolism of God as being one who is pure. He is holy. His, his throne is raging with fire. It's ablaze with the fire of God's glory and his holiness. And all who stand before it are judged in righteous judgment. And then there are three more cast members. And so we're going to look at first the little horn, little horn that dominates and then is damned. Let's pray as we go into this time and ask God again to give us strength and grace to understand. Father, I pray as we go through this text, it's a very difficult one. I pray all of our minds be focused upon the truth of who you are. We'll trust your word. We'll respond in obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A horn represents authority, represents power, in the ancient times with these ancient kings, they would have a horn. They would fill it with oil. They would use that to anoint kings. Also, the, the shofar, the horns of a ram, would be blown. It would call in kings, or the king would be coming, so they'd call people in. Or sometimes the king would be leaving, so the shofar, the, the horn, would announce his departure. So what we see here in Daniel are these horns, which represent kings. And we can see this little horn. He's introduced in verse 8. He is judged by God with death and hell in verse 11. And then in verse 19, we see that the angel describes really his dominance on the earth and then his end. And we're going to see this morning the little horn dominates and then is damned for eternity in hell. Look down in verse number 7. The Bible says, After this, I, that's Daniel, saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast... This is this Roman Empire, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And so we learned last week that this beast represents the mighty Roman Empire that ruled for over a thousand years. And that's what it did. If you were in eighth grade history class or whatever, whenever you learned that, you learned about this nation right here. And that's, that's what he's describing but then Daniel sees something that has not taken place yet in history. And he sees the Roman Empire and he sees actually 10 nations, 10 kings who rule 10 nations. And one king who's pre that's dominant and he overpowers three other nations and then he rules the world. And so what I want you to notice here is that he transitions from a what's past history for us, the Roman Empire, into this future revitalized Roman Empire that has 10 nations. And I want you to notice the sequence. This is very important. The beginning of verse 7, and actually you see this throughout this chapter. The beginning of verse 7, you see this historical Roman Empire dominates. Then after that domination, Daniel sees 10 horns or 10 kings. And the sequence is significant because it indicates that these, that these 10 kings come from this great beast. So there's some kind of revitalized Roman Empire, but also they don't come to power until after the beast's initial dominance. And so the point is this. You might be like, what are you talking about? Well, the point is this is very similar to what we see in Daniel chapter number two, where there are these two Roman empires, one that is passed for us. It's the legs made of iron. And then you see this other one that's a mixture and it's made of iron and clay, and there's ten toes, ten kings. So that, look down in verse 7. We're going to continue going here. The point is, there's a past, and now there's a future Roman Empire. So it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and now we're going to look future. Of course, this was all future for Daniel, but for us, this is future. It had ten horns, and I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. 
There's our little horn. Before the, which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, this, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So first we see this wild beast of a nation that demolishes everything around it. Then God draws Daniel's attention to these ten horns. This little horn that comes up and overthrows three other horns. Now, someone asked me last week, one of my kids actually asked me last week, Dad, how do you know that these horns are kings and these, you know, beasts are nations? How do you know all that? Well, you know what you do? You just keep reading through the text, right? It's the simple reading of the text tells us this, and we'll see this later on in verse 17. And after that, we're going to see that the angel describes and interprets what all this means. I mean, some people go to texts like this, and they think, you know, maybe a pastor like me, what? Wow, you have such great wisdom to be able to see all these different things. Well, just keep reading your Bible and it tells you, right? You know, I, I don't, you don't have to be this, have this great imagination in order to understand this. You just got to keep reading, okay? So when people, you know, try to describe prophecy and things like that, and they start making up things that aren't in the scriptures, you should be concerned about that. But I'm not making this up. This actually comes from the scripture here. And so then we see this little horn that comes up. And this little horn, we're going to find out later, is the Antichrist. And we'll, we'll look at that in just a second. He seems like an unlikely person, seems somewhat unimportant, but then he rises to power. He conquers three nations, and then he rules the other nations and dominates the earth. And look at verse 8. You can, say, you can see the scripture says that he had eyes like eyes of a man. It shows the wisdom he has, mouth that speaks great things. So here's this human dictator that communicates, has, has great uh, oratorial skills. He seems to be wise to everyone else on earth. So who is this person? Well, 1 John, the Bible tells us in 1 John 2.18 that that there are going to be many antichrists, but then there will be one antichrist. And so what we're going to see this morning that this is an antichrist. This is the, actually, I should say, the antichrist. Now, when you hear that word, what do you, what do you think of? I asked that to one person, and they mentioned someone's name. No, 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 that's not what I mean, okay? An antichrist is someone who opposes Christ. They're against Christ. They're antichrist. They're opposing Christ. Many times in history, you see people, dictators that rise to power, and they're antichrist types, right? They oppose Christ, they oppose, they oppose, oppose uh, Christ, they blaspheme God, they deceive people. They sometimes even claim the title of savior, they're going to rescue. But what's interesting is you look throughout history, there are these many antichrist type leaders who have been totalitarian dictators, and they actually have many similarities to each other but also to this Antichrist. I mean, you can see through history why people would have been like, oh, that's the Antichrist, because actually they have many similarities to the Antichrist. I was reading an article by the Cato Institute, and it was describing how dictators come to power. It was very interesting. If you, if you consider dictators like Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, I could go through the list here. Each of them were unlikely, initially unlikely candidates to rise to power. They didn't seem like they would be anyone, and eventually they did rise to power. They came to power when there was a national crisis. They presented themselves as saviors. Their socialist and really Marxist ideas were the solution to the country. People rallied around that. Think about Hitler it's very interesting to study him. He's very similar to an antichrist. He was a nobody. After World War I, though, Germany experienced economic crisis. Inflation was high. Budget deficits soared. 90% of the German government spending went to big bureaucracy and social programs. They spent more money to try to solve their problems. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and they had a big crisis. And so he stepped in. He had a solution for it. He was their savior, right? And he had a solution. It was this socialist idea that he would help the little guy. He was intelligent. He was eloquent. He wrapped his insidious plans for power in a moral call for justice and equity for the German people, for fairness. And what's interesting is you see all these dictators. That's what they do. 
right? I mean, they say, you know, you're oppressed, and, you know, I, and I can save us. And a lot of times their language sounds very religious. It talks about justice. It talks about what's right. It talks about equity. It talks about fairness, and it seems like it's very moral. But those power-hungry totalitarian dictators use those crises to grab control. And they're antichrists, right? I mean, those, you look at all of them. They're coming against morality. They're coming against Christ. They're coming against Christ's people. And so we look through history. We see those kind of antichrists dotted through church history, through history in general. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, right? So they have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. I think I've skipped something, right? Um, nope, therefore we know that it is the last hour. And so he says there's, there's going to be one that's going to come, and it is the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Bible says that, or Paul describes the Antichrist as the man of lawlessness. Of course, in Daniel, he's the little horn. Later on, he's going to be described as the beast. In fact, in Revelation 13, he's described as the beast. So the point is, here's this little horn, this dictator, the Antichrist. And after seeing this history, after seeing this Antichrist, after seeing what he does to the saints, you know, Daniel is terrified, right? He's anxious. In fact, look down in verse 15, you can see this. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate horror movies. I, I, I don't like them. They make me, there's a lot of reasons I don't like them. The nightmares are one of them. But, but, you know, it just, the feeling you get afterwards is terrible. But really what I think he's viewing here, I mean, he's, he's viewing the gore and savagery of the history of humanity, right? I mean, you can imagine, like, why is he anxious when he sees the Ancient of Days? He's, he's seen the world as it truly is in its wickedness. And then notice as he goes on in verse 16, I approached one, so some type of angel, someone there in that vision, one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of all the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So the angel standing there sums up the whole dream. So he takes it and does a shorter clip, and he says, like, the nations are going to rage, they're going to exalt themselves, but God Most High wins and rewards the saints. Which I think, again, comes back to this idea that though the nations rage, God wins in the end. And that's, that's the point he's bringing out here. He's like, okay, I know you're anxious about this, Daniel, but here's the thing. Here's the sum of it. The nations are going to rage, but remember, God wins in the end. In fact, look down in verse 19. Daniel says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, that Roman Empire, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left within its feet. And then notice we're transitioning now to this future Roman Empire and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. So again, we have this little horn. He's basically just describing the dream again. But then notice, he looks at this. He's looking at this, if you want to say movie, right? And he looked in verse 21, as I looked, this horn made war. So this antichrist, this dictator, he made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So notice in verse 21 that the Antichrist prevails in persecuting the saints. So he actually wins, in some sense, those battles, but God wins the war until, until, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came. The Ancient of Days is God, so he sends Jesus, his, the Son, and the Second Coming, and he wins it all. 
Again, what is this? Teach us. Though the nations rage, what's it say here? In the end, God wins. And so the angel repeats that and explains more about this little horn and his tyranny in verse 23. It says, thus he said, as the fourth beast, there, are, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. So here we go. How do you know these are kings and kingdoms, Pastor Ben? Oh, just look in the rest of scripture. Just keep reading which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth. So it's going to be this, this empire that rules the world and trample it and breaks it into pieces. In verse 22, and for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise. So those 10 horns are 10 kings. And others shall arise from them. That's the little horn, the antichrist. Shall be different from the former ones. Shall put down three kings. Who's so going to conquer three kings three kingdoms then as well. In verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, some of the things are clear, and some things are more hard to understand, huh? More difficult. This is the Antichrist, this little horn. Basically, he conquers the world. He presides over this totalitarian world government, which include 10 nations. He conquers three of those nations, three of those kings, and then dominates the rest in the world. And he's this charismatic, compelling leader. He's opposing God most high, and he wears out the saints. Now, what is that talking about? Actually, in verse 25 there, the word wear out is used to describe in other places, it's an Aramaic word to describe the wearing out of clothes. Now, it's popular today to wear clothes that are already worn out, right? And you, Actually, they're more expensive that way. So if you have some clothes and they have some rips or whatever in it, it's like you're cooler and it it's costs more money. There was a time, though, when you wore clothes and they actually did wear out because that's what happens when you wear clothes too much and boys run in the parking lot and they fall and and guys go out, work on the car, and they rip their jeans or whatever it is. And so the idea is, is that when there's friction and tribulation upon your clothing, then it ends up wearing out, right? And that's what you see the picture here is that this, this little horn, this antichrist, he is wearing out the saints. There's tribulation, there's friction. He's coming against them. And one of the main objectives of this Antichrist will be to oppose the people of God, to wear them down. And notice there's a time frame that God permits this to happen. Look down in verse 25 at the very end. They shall be given. Well, who gives that to him? Well, the Ancient of Days, right? He's the one in charge of time, of history. He's the sovereign. Shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. A time is a year. So times are two years, half a time is half a year. So what is that, mathematicians in here? That's three and a half years. So this little horn for three and a half years will have this intense persecution that God allows upon his saints. And then look at verse 26. It all comes to an end for him. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment his dominion, that's the dominion of this Antichrist who rules the world, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. So what is the end of this unconquerable dictator? Though the nations rage, God wins in the end. In fact, this is the conclusion throughout this chapter. Let me just show this to you because I think he's trying to pound this home to Daniel. Look at back in verse 21. So we're going to make our way back up. Look at verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, prevailed over them. Oh, no, they're defeated. Oh, no, they're not. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given. So though the nations rage, what is it? God wins in the end. Look back in verse 11. Daniel sees this, the nations rage. He sees this little horn rage against God's people. There's the judgment. In verse 11, this little horn, I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that this little horn was speaking, so here's this little horn raging, and as I looked, the beast was killed, the beast of his nation was killed, and its body, describing the nation, but I think also describing this little horn, destroyed and given over to be burned 
with fire. So the Antichrist is killed, his dominance is done, and he is judged with hell fire. So Little Horn dominates, then is damned for eternity. And again, why is he, why is he going back to this? I actually skipped ahead of there, didn't I? Why is he going back to this? He keeps going back to this because though the nations rage, everyone say it with me, God wins in the end. This is all future for us, but I think it's important for us to remember this because if you are in here and you're without Christ, or maybe you're in here and you're, you're pretending to live the Christian life, this is the future for, for this little horn, but for anyone who rejects God, there will be a day of accountability. This day of judgment will come, and in the end of, the to- of time, God will, will judge sinners for their sin. And so this is the future. And so we must now turn to Jesus Christ. And so let me just say this. If you are in here and you're without Christ, or you're pretending, like, stop that today. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Come to him today. Today is the day of salvation. Christ may come back any day. And so we must be ready. And so, next Satan, our saints are reviled and then reign. So what about the saints? Who are these people? What are they doing in this text here? Well, six times in chapter 7, we find this group of people called saints. The word saints means holy ones. Look down in verse 18. Who are these saints? Well, verse 18, we find out these saints, they belong to God. Daniel 7, 18. But the saints, these holy ones, of the Most High. They belong to the Most High. Look down in verse 21. You can see that these are people that are suffering. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints. These are people on earth suffering. Look at verse 27. You can see that the people of the saints of the Most High. So these are normal people who live on earth, but they belong to God. And they have been declared holy by God. Remember, this is, a, this is a, a view of earth from heaven's perspective. So as heaven looks down on earth, it sees the nations raging. They're acting like animals. But then he sees these holy ones that are also on earth. So from heaven's perspective, how does God view you? If you're without Christ, you're like an animal following your own sinful passions. You just do whatever you want to do. You live in independence from God. At least you think you do. But how does he view those who belong to him? He views you as a holy one, as a saint. There's a lot of confusion in our world in regard to saints, right? The Catholic Church has said this person's a saint, that person's a saint. When I was growing up, we heard about Mother Teresa. You know, now Mother Teresa is a saint. And the the idea of the world and some of these religions that aren't according to scripture, this idea of a saint is someone who earns that title, right? So if you are a good person through your life, especially if you do miracles, or if you do some amazing acts, then at the very end, maybe centuries later, <laughs> you can be dubbed a saint by some religious organization. Well, that's a completely unbiblical idea what saints are. And it's actually, I would say, in some sense, an antichrist view, right? Because you can't earn holiness. You can't You can't try to be good enough to be called a saint. No one is a saint because they earn it themselves. In fact, the scripture says that God saves us. He saved us. He called us to a holy calling. That's the word saint right there. It's where that word comes from, a holy calling. It's not because of our works. So you don't become a saint because you did something or you do something or you're good enough for God. No one becomes holy because they did anything. No, it's not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose. It's because of his grace. Grace is God's work in our life to resurrect our souls to life, which he gave us in Christ. It's through the work in the person of Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, before the ages began. And so how can a person be made holy? It's not by our works. There's no you know, getting in the water and being baptized, that doesn't make you holy. There's no prayer that can make you holy. Some people have this idea that, you know, if I, if I pray this certain prayer, if I do this certain thing, then, then I can be saved. I can, I, can be, I can be made holy. And, I, and when you go to these camps, I have, this summer I preach at a lot of 
youth camps, and a lot of these kids get this in their mind. They get this kind of trick in their mind, this deception in their mind, that if they do something, maybe if they come to church like this and sit here and take notes, or maybe if they, if they pray this certain prayer, then, then they, can, they can basically, in some sense, earn something before God, and God can forgive their sins. But you're not forgiven of sins because you do something. You're not made holy because you do something. It's because you turn from faith in yourself, from faith in your own religion, which is what? It's the religion of self, maybe trying to earn your way to heaven, maybe just living for yourself. You turn from faith in yourself, and you turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And you, you call on him as your Lord and as your Savior. And the Bible promises that those who do that are made holy by God, and they are to live for God. And the result of that is they are reviled. When you're made holy by God, you're declared holy by God, and you live for God, you will be reviled. You will suffer. The Bible promises us that. So what we see in Daniel chapter 7 are these saints. It's how God views them. He made them holy by the blood of Christ. Look down in verse 21, Daniel 7, 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints. So there he is. He's going against God's holy ones and prevailed over them. Well, this seems tragic now, doesn't it? Come on, when you read that, you go, well, how could that happen? God's holy ones are losing. The little dictator is prevailing over the saints. I grew up in Indiana, and so we had a lot of sports teams that lost every year. One of those were the Colts. That is until Peyton Manning became our quarterback. And uh, so we cheered him on. In 2003, Peyton Manning was their quarterback. And on October 6th, they were playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And that, and that season, they had the best defense. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers had the best defense in the league. But the Colts were losing. There was four minutes left in the game. The Colts were down 35-14. So they had four minutes to make up 21 points. No team had ever done it. And there were many people in the state of Indiana that turned off the TV. They were frustrated. You know, they've lost. Pete Manning let us down. How could he do that? And how much money are we giving him, right? And then they found out after the game that in those four minutes that Peyton Manning scored enough points for them to actually win the game. And he came back. And he brought the team back. You know what? No, no NFL team had come back from that big a deficit, but he was able to do that. Now, let's pretend you're in 2003, and you did the whole DVR thing, right? Some of you do that. Okay, maybe some of you don't. That was a big thing at one time. Maybe it still is. But anyways, some people, you know, they'd wait till the evening to watch it. They'd DVR it. They wouldn't want to hear from anyone. Of course, that was before social media. That's kind of a praise of God for that one. But anyways, whatever. That's another story. That, you know, so you just turn the radio off. You told people at church, please don't tell me the score. This is when some churches used to have Sunday evening services, right? So you waited to the very end, and then you were going to watch the game. So let's pretend you're, you're DVR in the game. You're going through it. It's four minutes left in the game. They're down by 21, and you're thinking they're going to lose. What do you do? Well, maybe you fast forward, you know. Well, I'll just, let's see what happens at the very end. You go to the very end. You go, oh, they won. That's awesome. They won. How did they do that? Then what are you going to do? You're going to go back, and you're going to watch it, and now you're going to watch it from a different perspective, right? You're not going to watch it as, oh, we're losers. Here's the Colts again, losing another game here. You're going to look at it as, how does he do this, right? And I think that's the perspective here. Why, why is it that God tells us the future like this, right? I mean, we're not going to be here for this. We're the church. I believe we'll be raptured out before this tribulation time. There will be saints. There will be holy ones on earth, those who are made holy by Christ, but, I mean, this isn't the future for us. So why, why, why is this something that God wants us to know now? I think that this is like God fast-forwarding, you know, to the very end and saying, hey, this is what happens at the end. Like, the nations are going to rage, but look at I win in the end. And I think it's because God wants us to keep trusting him. Like, no, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how much suffering we go through, to know that he is the one who wins in the end. I think it's like we're in a game of life. Sometimes we think we're losing, don't we? You can watch the news. I don't recommend that right now, by the way. But you can watch the news, and you can ask yourself the question, what happened to our country? 
What happened to the morals of our country? Where is the fear of God? I mean, how is our economy going to survive this? You know, another trillion dollars. How are we going to survive the tyranny of these communist countries, national shutdowns, right? I mean, you can watch that. You can think, I think we're losing. Maybe even sometimes in your own life, you think, well, life is not going as I planned. Like, I plan to have this happening at this point in my life. My, my, my friends left me. They left the state of California, <laughs> right? That stinks. My, sometimes you have jobs that don't go as planned. Maybe the job's more difficult than you imagined. Sometimes, sadly, we have family members that pass away. Sometimes we can have this sense, we can feel like God is not winning. Actually, I thought about this. I thought, don't you think Daniel maybe had that sense? You know, here he was in the kingdom of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar came to God in faith. Wow, that's awesome. A king over the whole world. And then Belshazzar steps on the throne. Oh, wicked guy. This is going the wrong direction. Babylon's going down the tubes, right? And it's like, doesn't God promise he's going to bring our, the people back? And God, also, God has all these promises for his people, but seems like they're not being fulfilled, and how is that guy going to? And so he sees this vision, and it's like, well, that's going to be a really bad history of the world. But in the end, God wins. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, hey, listen, we are going to be caught up with him in the air. We're going to, in the twinkling of an eye. At the very end, he concludes the idea that Christ is coming back. He concludes with this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What's the conclusion of considering the future, the coming of Christ, and the kingdom he has for us? What's the conclusion? Let's get to work now. That's what he's saying. He's saying, like, be steadfast. He's saying, abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that, listen, it's not in, la- it's not in vain what you do right now for the Lord. Every minute, every resource, every part of our life should be to invest in the future kingdom of God. And so that's what he talks about here about the saints. They're reviled, but then, then in the future, they will reign. They will reign in the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Right? You look at that, you see kingdom throughout this, you think, what is this kingdom he's talking about? Well, I want you to notice something before we talk about what that kingdom is. Notice there's Really, three sequential events. First, nations rage and revile the saints. Second, God judges the nations. And then third, the saints are given the kingdom. So look down at verse 17. I just want to point this out, and I'll, I'll tell you why in just a moment. Verse 17, first, the nations rage and revile the saints. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So there's these kings, these nations that rage. And then, verse 18... Kind of skips to the third one. The saints are given the kingdom. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Then look at verse 21. Again, the nations rage and revile the saints. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, prevailed over them. Then notice second, God judges the nations, verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. Then third, the saints are given the kingdom. Then the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now look down at verse 25. You see this again. The nations rage, revile the saints. He, he shall speak words against the Most High. This is this Antichrist. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And so here you have for this three and a half years, he's persecuting, he's raging, he's reviling the saints. Now look at verse 26. God judges him and the nations. But the court shall sit in judgment. Verse 26, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then look at verse 27. The saints are given the kingdom. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, that's earth, by the way, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, that's, that's the Most High's kingdom, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now you're asking, Pastor Ben, why are you talking about that? Well, for you eschatology geeks out there, I'm not going to go into different systems, but I want to point this out. The simple reading of the text tells us that the final eternal kingdom of God will not come until after three things. The suffering of the saints is done. 
until all human nations are ended and until the Antichrist is cast to hell. So, so the eternal kingdom of God will not fully come until three things happen. Until the suffering of the saints is done, until all human nations are ended, and until the Antichrist is cast into hell. So this kingdom, the kingdom given to the saints in the final reign of Christ, does not come into, until the end. So there are some people that don't believe there's actually a physical reign of Christ on earth. And I, I do believe, let me back up and say this, I do believe that there is a spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns now. Right? We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He, he sits on the throne. He is the one who rules over all nations, all kingdoms. There's a spiritual aspect to the kingdom. It's already here in that regard. Christ rules now as king, but the full kingdom is not yet here. In other words, what you see here in this text is that, that the, the saints are given some type of earthly kingdom. Like, look at, in fact, look at in verse 27, you can see this. He says, in the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven. So there's, where, where's heaven at? It's above the earth, right? The whole heaven. So under that is the earth. And so that, that dominion they had on the earth is given over to the saints, and the second reason I point out this sequence of events is to remind us that we will suffer now. Suffering is on this side of the second coming of Christ. We will suffer now, but there's coming a kingdom someday. The scripture tells us cross now, paradise later. And here's the thing. We don't think that way as, as Americans, do we? Like we're wanting the, we want the paradise now. You know, we look on our social medias and we see all of our friends who are doing well and we go, why am I not doing that well? Like, they have paradise, right? Why do I have suffering? Why do I have difficulty? Because, because our minds are, are designed by, or not designed, but they're programmed by our society to consider that this is li- the life, the only life we have. And if, if this life isn't paradise, then it's not worth living. But actually, the Bible tells us that paradise is to come, Right? There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be suffering now. In fact, we should sacrifice for the sake of that future time when we are in the kingdom of God. So the picture that Daniel has here is of an actual kingdom where there's actually an earth where the saints are given dominion. They're given the ability to reign. They are there with Christ. And we could look at other texts of scripture, so I don't want to go through the scripture and show you this. But as New Testament believers, we need to picture our future inheritance not as some type of spirits that are floating around on clouds, right? I mean, honestly, you talk to the average Christian in American church and you say, you know, what do you think it's going to look like in eternity? And, and they picture these kind of these like beings that are floating in, in the blackness of space, you know, and it's like zooming across galaxies or something. It's, no, actually, you should picture yourself in, in an actual earth, and there'll be a, a thousand years where Christ will reign as the loving, sovereign dictator. That's actually a good dictatorship to be under. And then there'll be a day when he, day when he makes, he creates a new heaven and a new earth for us to dwell on. He will be our God, our king, our sovereign. And so we should picture eternity in that way. Heaven, do you realize heaven is a city? And on this new heaven, this new earth, the city will actually come down after the second coming of Christ and Christ creates a new heaven, a new earth. The city will come down and God will dwell with man. And that's a day to live for. In fact, it's interesting. Jesus, he tells us, or he teaches us to pray. How does he teach us to pray? Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So I guess the question is, as a church, are we living for that day and the kingdom that is to come? Are you longing for the coming kingdom of God? Are you living as one now that is a member of that kingdom? You know, are, are, you, are you committed to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or your complete focus is on the earth? Are you laying up treasure in God's kingdom? Are you investing in that which will last? Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, don't 
Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And later on in that text, he says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, God can, God, listen, God's going to take care of you, okay? He's your father. He loves you. He's got it. Seek first the kingdom that is to come. There will be a day when you will enter into God's kingdom. And so we're to live for that day and seek his kingdom now. Now, you might have noticed something. You're thinking, Pastor Ben, you skipped two very important verses. Anyone notice that in here? That's verses 13 and 14. And I didn't know if I could get to this, but obviously I couldn't get to it. Those are two very important texts. And actually, I think to understand the Gospels, to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand verses 13 and 14, and that is, who is this son of man? The most common reference Jesus uses to talk about himself. Most common title is the son of man. So we're going to look at that next week. Should we do that? Let's do this to end. Would you go to Revelation chapter 13? What's the point of hearing all this? You know, this little horn, antichrist, saints are going to suffer. We've got this kingdom coming. What's the point of hearing all this? Like, this is all future, right? I mean, sometimes we can get in our mind like, okay, that's in the future, but I got to live life today, Pastor Ben. Like, this is my life today. Let's see what the Bible says about what this means for us now. Revelation chapter 13. And I want you to notice some of the similarities here between our text and this text of Scripture. And remember that this is what's going to happen in the future. This is prophecy. Verse 1, chapter 13. I saw a beast. So, again, that's a raging nation, right? And that's... What we saw in Daniel, that Roman, revived Roman Empire, ruled by this little horn. Rising out of the sea, that's the sea of humanity, with ten horns. Well, there you go, ten horns, ten kings, ten nations, and seven heads. Why seven heads? Because he conquered three of the other ones, right? So now there's only seven autonomous nations left. With ten diadems on its horns, in other words, he ruled over these ten nations, and blasphemous names on its head. In verse 2. And the beast, this Antichrist, I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, that's Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. So he has this amazing, supernatural, in some sense, power. Look at verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Okay, math whizzes in here. How many years is that? Three and a half years. Verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war with the saints. There's the saints. And to conquer them. So the Ancient of Days is allowing that to happen. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. That is the ancient, uh, that is the um, Antichrist. So who are those people who will worship the Antichrist? Everyone whose name is not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So what is the end for those who are not holy ones, those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The end is judgment. They are slain, they are judged with fire, and that's going to happen at the second coming of Christ. So what is the point for God's saints? I mean, why did God put these texts in the scripture? Well, though the nations rage, God wins in the end. So what does that mean for us now? And he says that. Look at verse 9. Look at the very last sentence of verse 9. He sums it up and he says, listen, this is what it means for you right now. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. He's saying, listen, we read these texts of scripture like this and they remind us, keep enduring, right? You might feel defeated. You might feel like Life is not going as I planned. Maybe is God really in charge? The answer is yes. You know the end. God tells you right here. 
Though the nations rage, though people rage against you, though families rage against you, though friends rage against you, though the country comes against you, you know this, God wins in the end. So endure, trust in the Lord, you his saints. And everything we're talking about is really going to happen, right? These aren't just, you know, these imaginative beasts, right? These are real nations. These are real people. These are real saints. These are real holy ones of God. This is all in the future. This is really going to happen. And so we have to prepare for that today. And the reality for us, church, is that Christ, he could come back today, right? He could come back at any time. His coming is imminent. So the question we must conclude with then is this. Are you ready? And what does that look like? Are we working for Christ now? Be steadfast. Be unmovable, abound in the work of the kingdom of God. Live as a kingdom saint now and look forward to the kingdom he has in the future. Yesterday, last night, I went and visited um, Jewel Milner in the hospital, and um, she's suffering. And I saw Kathy Turner Sr., and Kathy and Rod and Mike and Rissa are taking care of her as she's having some physical difficulties, so pray for her. But as I was looking at Kathy and just thinking about you know, what she was doing, that was, I said to her, I said, this is a ministry you have. You have a ministry right now. It's a difficult ministry. You know, anytime you're around people, it's a ministry, right? Especially when you're taking care of someone who is older and maybe they're getting towards the end of their days. It's, it's a ministry you have. Each one of us has ministries. And if you don't have a ministry, you need to look for one, Right? And you, you have ministries within your family, you have ministries within your community, but we have ministries in the church here. And so the question for us is, are we at work for the kingdom of God? Are we investing in lives of people? Are we telling people the gospel? Are we praying for each other? Are we helping each other become more like Christ? This past week, I also met with a number of these, some men in here in our church, some of the young guys as well. And, and I'll tell them what I told them, um, I told, I'll tell you what I told them, and that is, is that that we need to look at each other in this church, look around, and consider how can I invest in this person for eternity? You know, in a, in a million years from now, when we're looking around in God's kingdom, what are the things that are going to still be around? Souls. Souls will be around. People will be around. Those for whom Christ, who Christ has made holy, those will be the ones that will be in eternity, in heaven, in God's kingdom, and what is done for Christ. That will last. And so let's live for Christ in his kingdom. Let's pray.